Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Maeve Marsden, and you're listening to Queer Stories 2020. Yes, I know it's 2021 now, but has much changed really? We're still in this strange state of fear and waiting, wondering if normal will return, wondering what normal was, and then wondering if normal is even something to strive for anyway. This first story today is actually by me, and it's one I've been meaning to share on Queer Stories for some time now. It's a story about risk-taking, disaster striking, and being young and stupid. So it's certainly on point for a podcast series about 2020. When I was 18, I was involved in what was, at the time, one of the largest land rescues in Australian history. There may have been larger land rescues since, but I've chosen not to find out. Being raised by lesbian mothers, I was taught to always strive to be the best at what I do, even if that is risking lives and costing the government thousands in personnel and equipment. (laughs) I grew up in an inner Sydney bubble where being queer or having a queer family wasn't too much of an issue. So the choice to move to Bathurst to study theatre was admittedly an odd one. Bathurst sits about three hours west of Sydney, or two and a half hours if you're speeding in your best friend's beat-up Camry. Wide streets on a grid, flat earth except for the famous Mount Pan racing track. The town is situated on beautiful Wiradjuri country. And while it may not be everyone's idea of picturesque, when I visited it in year 12 to check out the campus, I fell in love. I used to walk outside my house each morning and fling my head back to shout at the sky. I was obsessed with the clouds, with how open it all was compared to Sydney, with the patterns and streaks and sense of possibility. Most of the students in Bathurst, and there's a really high student population to the rest of the population, most of them have moved away from home, either living on campus or in countless share houses lining the streets. Young people wrenched out of the structure of high school, let loose under those big fat clouds. It was mayhem. I moved into a dilapidated terrace nestled between the train station, a vacant lot, a cafe that served the best wedges with sour cream and sweet chilli I have ever eaten and ever will, and the Tattersall's pub, where the theatre kids would assemble to drink shit beer, perform terrible poetry, play the out-of-tune piano and curl up by the fire in trackies and uggs. On really cold nights, and Bathurst has a lot of cold nights, I'd walk over wrapped in my doona still and sit on the floor to enjoy a shoulder massage from my best pal Cameron, who I immediately attached myself to after I saw him at the uni bar, proudly wearing a purple midriff shirt that spelt out, bye, in sequins. (laughs) Cameron would give anyone a chaste and platonic shoulder massage if they bought him a Kahlua and milk. He remains one of my best mates 20 years later. There was another bar a stone's throw from the tats and yet another around the corner. In 2002, Bathurst had the highest number of pubs per capita and the highest rate of sexual assault. 
the uni had a seven to one ratio of women to men, which should have been lesbian heaven for me, but instead led to a concentration of entitled straight men with way too much choice, who'd write songs cleverly rhyming seven to one ratio with increases your chances of fellatio and perform them at the uni bar. I didn't get laid much and I didn't fit in. The abseiling trip that led to our rescue was ill-advised to say the least. We were supposedly training for a physical theatre show titled Blue Flame, in which I was to portray Mother Earth, a curvaceous figure embroiled in a fierce contest with Father Time. <laughs> Dressed in a skirt fashioned out of homemade lanterns, I would play Billy Joel songs on my violin. To a clown-like character my housemate created, the performance of which I now believe to be pretty ableist. Many have been understandably outraged about the government's complete disregard for the creative industries during the pandemic, but looking back at this particular production, I find myself sympathising with old ScoMo in this regard. Maybe art is bad. <laughs> We're going to abseil down Calang Gorge said one of the consistently stoned uni tutors charged with organising the trip. I used to be a cadet leader. I've done it before. Sure, sure, cool, cool, sounds good, we all said, imagining the charming little boulders we'd scampered down at school camp just a few years prior. On the eve of our escapade, all 24 of us stayed up late into the night, drinking, smoking, joyful. Now, Calang Gorge is a stunning spot. You emerge from the bush track for the first descent and are greeted with a wide open valley facing an epic wall of steep red cliffs. It was one of those perfect autumn days in the mountains, bright sunshine and crisp air. This is what I left Sydney for, I thought. Wind and sky and adventure sports. On the first couple of descents, I was giddy, easing my body backwards over the ledge. I started out gingerly, but was soon attempting little jumps, testing out the ropes and my own bravery, chasing adrenaline and attempting to impress my new friends. Who was watching the time when in between each climb we could perch on a rock, gossiping about the ins and outs of everyone's love lies, a web more tangled than the queer community, <laughs> lean back in the sun and watch each other bound down the cliffs, running our hands through the waterfall, gasping when someone slipped, cheering when one of the more athletic among us did something fancy. I don't remember at what point in the day I came to understand the sheer scale of what we were attempting whether it was when the third piece of equipment broke or the fourth, when that cadet leader explained that they usually did the climbs in groups of eight, not 24, or when one guy put his knee out and we had to fashion a splint from a branch of a fallen tree. Shouldn't we just leave though? Surely we can't expect him to keep abseiling like that. <laughs> oh, I see, so you can climb into the gorge, but you can't climb out. Google wasn't a verb yet. And besides, we were out of range, so I couldn't reach into my pocket for useful bits of information like, one of the most extreme abseiling sites in the country, this breathtaking 280 meter gorge is the domain of serious outdoor pursuit specialists. With up to 10 consecutive abseils, this trip is suitable for those with strong skills, able to cope with a very steep and long climb out of the valley. Fun fact. You don't need to do the long and steep climb out of the valley if you're flown out by helicopter at the taxpayer's expense. We were not outdoor pursuit specialists, we were theatre students. 
We were only halfway down the gorge when night fell, gathered in an area about the size of your average lounge room. Sheer drop to one side, waterfall on the other. We were hungry, we were cold, and one of Mother Earth's fairies had already started cheating on her boyfriend with Father Time. <laughs> we built a small fire on the rocky outcrop we called home and created a human centipede around it, taking turns in the inner and outer circle of warmth. The next morning, having barely slept, we watched the sun rise slowly across the valley and scrambled through the scrub to find the next descent. Our climbing slowed, our mood was less giddy, but there was still an air of adventure among us when we heard cries above and spied an orange speck making its way through the trees. The SES had found us. <laughs> Following our path strewn with mandarin peels and broken dreams, with a view to helping us complete the climb. A few hours later, a helicopter descended over our motley crew, the noise and wind of the rotor violently shaking the birds out of the trees above. They were able to winch out the guy with the bum knee, but we soon heard over the radio that the winds were too high for them to come back. We saw a second helicopter arrive in the distance, but it was just Channel 9. <laughs> we should keep going, said the SES. We'll just have to finish the climb. By nightfall day two, we were only one big drop from the base of the valley on a sloped muddy patch next to a cliff-top pond. But we were delirious, cold, exhausted, injured. The SES looked us up and down and decided we should just stay another night. Paramedics climbed up to us from the base of the canyon with silver space blankets and food. Fun fact, paramedics love it when you say you can't eat the food they've literally carried up a cliff because you're vegetarian. Oh, good times. <laughs> By now, our tiny campsite was swarming with swarthy men in uniform. The straight girls attempted to flirt with them, a fascinating inclination considering they clearly thought we were all idiots. Four of the volunteers made a wall around my friend Brietta as she crouched over the pond to change her tampon. Instead of sitting quietly and thinking about what we'd done, a few of us made up a song about the whole experience. <laughs> insufferable. Uh, no, actually we made up a medley of popular songs and we rewrote the lyrics, no doubt the foundation of my career as a cabaret artiste. At first I was afraid, I was petrified, kept thinking I would never make it down the mountainside. Or um, my personal favourite, I'm a survivor, I'm gonna make it, when we touch equipment we usually break it. <sighs> Under the space blanket that night, I got a little sleep, waking up to hear they'd put out the fire because we kept rolling into it into our slumber. <laughs> at dawn, the helicopter returned. They would winch out as many of us as they could, four at a time. If the winds picked up, whoever was left would complete the final descent to the bottom and then that long and steep climb out. All right, make a line here, girls first, then the boys. Now look. Some would say that when you've spent 48 hours in the cold, hungry because you wouldn't eat the canned ham, deranged and frightened because you thought your friends might die, you aren't in prime condition to deliver a feminist lecture. <laughs> Some would say that a bunch of blokey SES guys who've left their families for the night to volunteer their time and risk their lives to save you are not the prime audience for a feminist lecture. 
but I was 18 and I was yet to understand the complexity of the audience performer contract, so I gave that feminist lecture. Oh, yes, I did. Um, excuse me, sir, but some of the girls here are acrobats and most of the guys sacrificed themselves last night by sitting further away from the fire in order to impress the girls they're sleeping with and now they have hypothermia. So I'm not sure that queuing up girls than guys is actually the best approach. Abandoning the gendered system, we made our own queue, and being a surprisingly agile climber for my frame, it was decided I would be winched out 13th. I tried not to be superstitious and focused instead on the fact that I was apparently better at abseiling than 11 of my fellow theatre students. Either that or they were just happy to sacrifice this self-important little lesbian to the falls. When the helicopter descended, it whipped up a wind so fierce the inertia made the waterfall flow backwards. Each time it approached us, the stream of water cascading down the cliff would rise as if compelled by otherworldly forces, twisting its way upwards until it arched away from the rocks, defying gravity. To watch this magic meant accepting scratches and bruises from the sticks and stones dislodged by the wind, whipping towards your face. Eyes full of dust, I kept risking injury to watch the waterfall, to watch each of my friends clipped into the harness and pulled through the air. Look, dodge. Look, dodge. <laughs> it was worth it. I tried to take a moment as I was winched out to admire the view, aware at least that this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. However, after two nights in the same underwear, huddled on damp earth, I had developed a horrendous case of thrush, and so my enduring memory of flying through the air above magnificent Canangraboid National Park is thinking, when the fuck am I going to be able to itch my vagina? <laughs> Days later, dodging prime news reporters as we walked to class, I heard about two students from Newcastle Uni who'd died in the gorge the year prior. But I didn't think about it too long. I was too busy fretting about what to wear to the uni bar. When I sat down to write this piece, I was struck by the madness of youth, the fearlessness, the belief that death is a thing that happens to other people, the willingness to hurl one's body down a cliff in the pursuit of fun and adventure, or perhaps to queue outside a pub in the middle of a pandemic. In the past year, even before world events made us all consider our own mortality, I experienced loss and grief in a way that's brought that tenuous grip we have on life into stark relief. I think if I were invited on a little abseiling trip today, even if it were in pursuit of making theatre, I would do a little research. <laughs> Pack some spare thermal underwear and snacks. I'll leave the last word to CEO of the helicopter rescue team, Stephen Lay, quoted in 2002 in the Sydney Morning Herald in a report titled, A Comedy of Errors. The scene that greeted the rescue consortium of police, SES and paramedics on Monday afternoon was horrific. We have absolutely no doubt that if our team had not got in on Monday, there would have been at least one fatality. The message is clear. If we're going to undertake outdoor recreation, we have to take responsibility for our actions. We have to stop for a minute and consider the risks. Thank you. This next story is also about taking risks, though of a slightly more personal nature. It's a story by Trent Wallace, who lives on Gadigal country and is a First Nations advisor and pro bono lawyer in a global law firm, the first and only Aboriginal person to hold this position. He is a serious Hague's aficionado and pop culture quota. 
March 14, 2020, I started working from home the day after I got myself a new car. I've got a real knack for timing, it seems. Malfunctioning Opal machines were replaced by me turning off my alarm at 8.50am. I wake up to the soothing sounds of India Ari's video as my alarm. My dear friend, now a drag queen, used to wake up to the bloody beetroots tune that goes one, two, whoop, whoop, and he could easily sleep right through it. The idea of starting off my day with a nightclub anthem just doesn't feel right. But I guess if I had to choose an anthem, it would be, I will survive. Mornings spent getting preen to look like the love child of Gina Liano and Walter Mercado were now replaced with a dressing gown and Ugg boots. I nod to my naughties girls, Brittany, Paris and Lindsay. Underneath the gown was a variety of Peter Alexander pyjamas, my new work attire. Oh, but of course, everything just had to be transformed into a bloody webcam call. Having piled on the weight in the first few weeks, or so I had thought, I was more self-conscious than usual. We all create narratives about ourselves, none of which are ever very accurate. I mean, I self-talk so much shit on me that my internal dialogue is like a fight between two real housewives on a reunion show. Still, I made the best with what I had and I worked my angles, mama. And I held my laptop up like it was the famous Lion King scene and as high as those cameras that capture you as you walk into Coles. Sorry, peeps. I wasn't looking at you or your new puppy in the new Brady Bunch opening credits way of doing business. The continual lags, the pausing, the can you hear me, the you're on mute, the quarantine jokes got old real quick. I was staring at my reflection, judging all of the flaws. As an introvert, I felt my space swallowed up in lockdown. My home is my haven. It's my safe space, my oasis. And now I had to share it with bloody strangers. I appreciated people were missing connections, but to me it all felt so forced. I'd quickly pull on a jacket over my pajamas and plaster a smile across my face to try and connect and appease people. I wanted them to seek comfort in me. I wanted to help them feel some semblance of regularity. My work headshot is of me wearing sequins and a Gucci bow tie, so I'd try and keep up that facade when I had the energy. I just wanted people to feel good during their time with me, despite how I felt, which I'd rarely, if ever, reveal. Vulnerability means weakness, and weakness means I lose. I have many people that rely on me, so complaining and losing is never an option. And I was so used to hearing people say, You're the happiest person I know! But in reality, it was often a performance. No more laser clinic. My formerly smooth skin was now looking like a wrinkled piece of paper. The illusion of being a natural blonde was revealed to be complete bullshit and I did not dare try any formal clothing on. I started a tracksuit collection that could rival Sporty Spice and Missy Elliott's. With a face mask and gloves on, hell, I could rival McDreamy and McSteamy. <laughs> I'd be McIce Creamy or McPanini. Food was where I sought comfort and control. Can you imagine a lawyer being a control freak? No way. My untamed newly brunette hair would go into its natural state of curl and frizz. 
I had ditched the fake tan and could rival Casper. Although I'm Aboriginal, my melanin is about as existent as my free cars, free education and free housing. Mic drop, but not yet, because I'm not finished. My work life melted into my home life. There was no divide or magical home office that people would often speak about. Yes, I'm a lawyer, but a social justice lawyer who resides in a shared apartment with a couple who are also social justice lawyers. Our idea of an office is the dining table and the kitchen. Our living space looked like the tech area of a suburban cash converters. All that was missing was a Nintendo 64 and a Mario Kart cartridge. Do you remember the days of informal tech advice where it was simply, just pull it out and blow on it, and where such advice wouldn't be found as a joke on some lame dating profile? My birthday came around. April 27. A Taurus. Stubborn. Turning 31. Lizzo and I share the same birthday, and physique it seems. My dear friends tried to make it as special as possible. I was given Hague's, my favourite chocolate ever, and other beautiful gifts, including a gift card to my new favourite clothing store, Peter Alexander. I had two outfits that day, a sparkly velour tracksuit that Nicole Ritchie would have stolen off me in 2004, and a black and gold Adidas tracksuit that would have made the boys and Range Rovers in Bankstown jealous. I kept trying to see the bright side, but I yearned for my family. I'd normally be with them for my birthday and then I'd be on my way to Brisbane to see two of my favourite people, also fellow Tauruses. Reminiscing wasn't allowed for too long though, as an emergency fire drill saw us needing to evacuate. As I pulled my newly redundant Gucci work bag over my tracksuit, I contemplated the positives of a free cremation. But my phone was buzzing full of notifications and I had work emails to reply to. We used the stairs, my hands coated in my Grey's Anatomy get-up, although I'd prefer to use a Von Ryan and All Saints simile here. God bless 90s Aussie TV dramas. My best friend and one of the only people on the planet I could bear living with is named Monte Carlo. Well, not actually. It's my nickname for her. And yes, pretty much everything important in my life relates to food. Monte Carlo reads me so well and has therefore broken through my facade. But finding my words to speak my truth on my birthday felt impossible. Again, vulnerability means weakness, which means I lose. I wanted to be out on dark and young country with my family that day. It hurt. Monte Carlo's boyfriend's family made me my favourite chocolate cake. They're Jewish, and as much as they've adopted me, I've adopted them. I'm them a sugar and a wild child with tattoos and sass. And just to clarify, if anyone I consider dear to me is dating someone, I'm also in that relationship. I expect gifts and attention. Lockdown was still in full force when I started to feel niggles in my body. Fuck. My own body was being vulnerable. I was being weak. I was going to lose. 500 steps and I was in agony. I went six minutes without oxygen at birth and my parents were told I'd be left with severe brain damage. I defied the expert medical opinions as a child. I'm never one to give in, remember? I'm a fighter, that's my story. My confidence is silent, but whenever I'm doubted it is my aim to prove others wrong, which I've done over and over again. It's exhausting, but this is the narrative I have created. Anything I've set my mind to, I've achieved. But now the pain had me shuffling around Waterloo. 
I was moving around like Ozzy Osbourne while dressed in Adidas tracksuits that Sue Sylvester and Vicky Pollard would have envied. I was determined to sort it out. And as I rolled into my midlife crisis coupe, and let's be honest, with the gaps in life expectancy, 31 is pretty much midlife for an Aboriginal man like me. I set off to the Moore Park Supercenter, aka the land of the coupled homosexuals in their 40s. I rolled out of the coupe to the sound of Boss Bitch by Doja Cat, but I can assure you I wasn't feeling like much of a boss bitch that day. I decided my sequin velour tracksuit was the best costume for today, as little Edie would opine, and I hobbled along to satisfy the reason I arrived. To get something that would massage me, you know, to help break up the pain. Yeah, that's right. I solve my own damn problems and will fix everything, because that's what I do. I fix everything by myself. As I perused the array of massage devices, I paused the music on my earphones. Annie Lennox is walking on broken glass was playing and couples of all combinations were in surrounding aisles. Hun, should we get the 55 inch or the 65 inch? The inane conversations washed over my body as the lyrics rang in my ears. I'm living in an empty room with all the windows smashed and I've got so little left to lose that it feels like I'm just walking on broken glass. The inane conversation were simply couples communicating, relying on each other making decisions together. And I was in an aisle looking at self-massage devices, trying to see if the handles had reached to my back and I'd never felt so alone. Not knowing how to process the emotions, I grabbed a piece of equipment that would fit in one of my chairs at home. It even had a heat function to replace the embrace of another human, I imagined. The couples I saw were slender and therefore palatable. Fat people aren't really considered palatable unless it's down to being fetishized. How many of us as fatties have yarned about our weight only to be told by friends that we are beautiful? As if that's a consolation. Uh, hang on, I said I was fat, not ugly. Courtney Love once said, They will forgive you all the drugs in the world, but they will never forgive you for getting fat. Well, I'm not seeking forgiveness nor redemption. I do not need that. Society has rejected my very being. Whether it be my Aboriginal identity, being left-handed, being fat, being heavily tattooed in the legal profession, and or wearing weird clothes. For most of society, my existence is incorrect. I am an outsider, and that is why I've had to forge my own path. It is why I've been the first, or first and only Aboriginal person in my various jobs. I have only ever known being alone. I've only ever known being able to turn to myself. My resilience is derived from trying to thrive in a world that was built on my oppression. I don't necessarily perceive resilience as a positive thing, though. In fact, I think it reinforces what's wrong with society and feels rather patronising. Every day should not feel like a fucking battle because I've been assigned particular attributes at birth. In fact, next time you define or perceive someone as being resilient, Look at how you've been complicit in underpinning and reinforcing their oppression. As Madonna once sang, I'm not your bitch, don't hang your shit on me. After a night of zero sleep, Monte Carlo convinced me to see a physiotherapist. Restriction had eased, and despite my trust issues, I trust my Monte Carlo. She is the first friend I let see me wearing my tanning attire. My hair tied up like Bam Bam and wearing a 2009 Ed Hardy singlet. I miss those days when Ed Hardy was a thing. 
I went to the local physiotherapist relinquishing some of my power. The physio I saw was an award-winning gymnast who looked like he had just stepped off the set of Home and Away. I had to take some clothes off as he assessed my body. Well, fuck, that sleeve of Oreos didn't feel so good at that moment. He asked me to do an exercise that involved me leaning and sitting back onto a bench. I put my arms behind me to hold the bench as I sat, and he said he wanted me to stop doing that. But physically, I couldn't. I didn't trust that the bench would be there, I told him. As I realised what I had said, I started to laugh and try and scan the room to make sure nobody had heard me blurt out such an embarrassing admission. I bloody admitted openly to a stranger that I had trust issues with a bench. He didn't notice that at all though, and because I laughed, he laughed too. Internally, I knew I'd woken a vulnerability, which meant I was weak, but I did not lose. In fact, in that moment, I realised that maybe I was alone because of my trust issues, not the reason I gave him my internal dialogues and monologues. And in that moment, I was able to recognise what needed healing. I was like a middle-aged white lady reading Eat, Pray, Love, but John Candy was dead, so uh, who was going to play me? See, the self-deprecating jokes still sit in me because there is a script ready. The internal monologue and dialogue is there, but I don't want that life anymore. I want to lean into my vulnerabilities. I want to focus on things that have failed and learn from them as opposed to covering them over. Being vulnerable is not weak and it does not mean I will lose. In fact, it's not even about losing or winning. It's about being human. It's about telling your truth. No matter how ugly for the external world it is, it's about the balance of the lightness and the darkness. It is not my job to be the happiest person you know. It is not my job to perform for you. I do not need to apologise for being fat. I do not need to apologise for being me. It is my job to be my authentic self and live life to the fullest. It's not that easy, of course, and there is much work to be done. But as my girl Tina sang, I've been thinking about my own protection and it scares me to feel this way. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, follow Queer Stories on Facebook and me, Maeve Marsden, on Twitter and Instagram. This project is supported by the City of Sydney through a creative fellowship fund. You can support Queer Stories for as little as $1 per month by signing up to my Patreon. Look up Maeve Marsden on Patreon or follow the links in the podcast description. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.